0: Right before we it hit us, wherever we were, we were happy, we were perfectly fine, and then something comes up out of nowhere, and it's like, oh man, this is, this is the worst thing that could possibly happen in this moment, uh, especially when we celebrate too early, before things are over. I don't know how many of you paid attention to the NCAA Final Four Championship <laughs> Tournament, but I've got a couple pictures here. This first one is a picture of Tumor's Corner. Tumor's Corner is where Auburn University goes to celebrate big wins, and they TP a couple of different trees there. Well, this is a camera that's focused on there, and all the students are coming uh, to hang out, to swarm to do that. And this is an after photo of that, of just a couple people holding their heads in disbelief, because I don't know if you know this, but in .6 seconds, Auburn went from winning and going to the national championship title game to losing. They thought that they had won the game and people bum-rushed everything and then they came out and their people consoled. I mean, you see some of the video, people are crying, you see guys being consoled, you, you know, because they-, they lost when they had thought that they won. And if you know that feeling of receiving unexpected news, maybe that phone call or that announcement or that conversation that comes out of nowhere, it's a surreal moment at first. You know, you're in somewhat of a state of shock that, no, there's no way that this could possibly be true, uh, and the reality of what you're facing slowly begins to dawn on you and you realize, man, uh, this this event, this thing that just has happened has changed everything, and I really don't know how I'm going to handle this. And I'm not talking about the kind of thing where you pull up to your favorite restaurant and it's closed. I'm not talking about that. Um, I mean, I wish Pi Five was still there on down the corner. Anyway. Yeah, anybody with me? It was next to Potbellies, and loved that place, and it was great. It's gone now. Uh, It's not there. There's a new pizza place there, but I haven't checked it out because it's not Pie Five. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the real-life stuff. You know, the stuff when you're called into your boss's office, and you find out that you've been laid off, or you've been let go. I'm talking about the real-life stuff where a family member calls out of the blue, and tells you about some sort of tragedy that's happened, or you get a prognosis from your doctor that you didn't expect. The kinds of things that have happened in your life that you weren't sure then if you were ever gonna fully recover from it, and maybe even now, you're still struggling with how that thing has affected you from that point forward. The last couple of weeks, I mean, we've been talking about hope, that's what this sermon series is about, but we've been talking about hope the last couple of weeks in terms of how what we do, the decisions that we make, the things that we control, how that affects the kind of hope that we have. This week, we're talking about what we do with hope when things are completely out of our control. In our first message, we studied Jesus' triumphal entry and the difference between the people and what they wanted out of Jesus and what they actually needed from him and what he had come to accomplish and how it's different when we look at hope from that perspective. Uh, The the week, uh, so that was the first week, last week, maybe I said last week, I didn't mean to say that, two weeks ago, last week. We talked about the difference between Mary and Judas and how they responded to Jesus' life and ministry as he was preparing for his death. And how Mary was willing to go all in with her hope with Jesus when Judas wasn't. And he took all of his brokenness with him and rejected Jesus in his life. And how the hope that Jesus brings is worth giving everything for that nothing else satisfies. And so this morning, we're talking about hope when everything is out of our control. Those are the moments in which our hope is most clearly defined. Because hope is the thing that we hold on to. It, it, it's, it's unique. It's the thing that we hold on to when it when doesn't seem like there is any reason to hope. I mean, it stands in a very specific gap in our life. And it's, it's a cornerstone of our faith. Hope is a part of our faith. Consider this definition of faith from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. So faith is directly linked to hope because God desires us to be expectant for good when life is not in our control because that's the kind of love he has for us is that his promise for us as Christ followers is that he's going to work things out to, good, to the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so faith and hope combine to confirm in our hearts that the goodness of God both has come and will come. See, faith without hope only works when things are going along as planned. For, for example, if you only have faith in someone's ability to complete a task up and until the point that they show some form of incompetence to you and then you kind of reject them— Eventually, everyone in your life is going to disappoint you. And that's going to be a miserable way to live. But we, we, we place hope in that, and we understand that people can develop, they can grow, they can change, they can learn, they can adapt. And so hope brings us so much further along when it comes to our relationships and how we interact with the real world. So hope, hope is the difference between giving up and waiting patiently even when things are out of our control. This past Monday night, UVA, do we have any UVA fans here this morning? Okay, a couple, you know, maybe based on proximity, I don't, you know, maybe your bandwagon fan. That's, that's fine. I mean, there, there, there's no problem with that. But UVA won the national championship game, and one of the things that was really cool about that is their coach, I, you know, I have a lot of respect for Tony Bennett and how he talked about and expressed his, his faith how he honored God in the midst of this win. And one of the things that made it even more powerful to me is that the way that Tony Bennett talked about how God was the part of the equation as, as, as a coach in this win, the tone of his voice, the phrases that he used, the way that he honored God was the same tone. It was the same phrases. It was the same consistent uh, looking to God, even when last year, I don't know if you guys remember this, But last year, UVA made history because they were the first number one seed to ever lose to a 16 seed in NCAA championship history. Okay? So so you imagine imagine the dark moment that you feel as a player, as a coach, as a program. You get in the history books for all the wrong reasons. (laughs) This is the last thing you want to do. And yet the consistency, because I think Tony Bennett would argue, as I would, that there are things that are more important in life to place our hope in than the outcome of a basketball game, that, that there's something there in how we allow ourselves to be led, how we allow ourselves to, be, to focus on God, that even when the worst possible scenario happens, that he can take that and he can redeem that and create it into something much better than we could possibly imagine. And so UVA now, that program has the best, and we're Americans, we love this. They have the, one of the best redemption stories ever in sports history because they didn't give up, because they waited patiently, they had hope. The greatest test of our hope will come when life is completely out of our control, and it's going to happen. Life being out of our control is a part of the human condition, and one of the most encouraging things we find in Scripture, at least to me, is that Jesus, the Son of God, knows exactly what that feels like. That Jesus shows us how to hope when it doesn't seem like there is any hope. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning in Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 32. Now while you turn there, hopefully you're turning there in your Bibles and checking that out, um, and not just the master scores. I I get it, the master is on right now if you're a golf fan. If Tiger Woods gets a birdie, just raise your hand and we'll be good. But as you're turning to to Mark chapter 14, verse 32, I I just need to let you know about something about this passage of Scripture that we're going through, just about this sermon. Things don't end well here. Things, Things end poorly for Jesus. Things end poorly for the disciples And and it's in this moment, it's in this space, that Jesus teaches us some very specific things about how we're supposed to hold on on to hope even when we don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. His followers, at the end of this, they will go into hiding in fear. It is the start of the most darkest, disappointing day ever for them as followers of Jesus. But there are practical applications to be made from this passage. I mean, we know, we know the rest of the story, we know that this doesn't just end with Jesus being arrested and executed, but here's the thing, every single one of us has experienced or will experience a day in which we feel like all hope is lost, and Jesus went through exactly that to show us how he's prepared to carry us through. So Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 32, they went to a place called Gethsemane, this is Jesus and his disciples, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray, so he took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Jesus knows that his arrest and his execution is imminent. And so he goes to this place, this Garden of Gethsemane, which just means oil press. And so Jesus has access to this grove of olive trees that he uses... Uh, as, a, as a solitary place for him to go and to pray and to recover and deal with what's happening in his life in that moment. And so he ta- asks for support from the inner circle of his inner circle. He takes his group of disciples, leaves most of them. Uh, at, the, at the beginning, as they get into the garden, he takes Peter, James, and John, who are his inner circle uh, among the disciples, and, and goes and asks them to be with him in this dark moment in his life. Now, here's the thing that, that I want to make sure that we know. In, in English, there's a little bit lost in the force of the language that's being used here by Mark to describe how Jesus is feeling. And so I want to point out to you the Greek words here that are, that are actually used. So when Mark says that Jesus is feeling troubled and distressed, I just want to let you know what those words mean. Uh, first of all, the word trouble. Uh, the word here that Mark used means to be struck with terror. And so when we read this, you know, Jesus is troubled and distressed, it's not just like, oh, man, this stinks. <laughs> you know, I hate that I'm going to have to go, go through this, but, you know, I'm going to take a moment right here, I'm going to pray. Like, no, Jesus, Jesus is seized with terror by this moment that he's about to face. And distress. Distress is one of those things that, you know, maybe if you looked at the definition, the dictionary definition of that, it would carry the force more. But I think most of us think of our distress as kind of like, oh, no, the Starbucks coffee line is too long. (laughs) You know, how long, you know, am I going to be able to get my latte, you know, on time? When Mark uses this word, he's using one of the strongest words that he can to talk about anguish and depression. And so when Jesus is in this moment and he says, my soul is overwhelmed, I'm in a sorrow that, that, that leads to death, he's talking about some of the deepest, most visceral, darkest moments that humans can feel and experience in this life. Jesus has not yet reached the cross, and yet he's already experiencing a, di- a dark night of the soul that threatens to overwhelm it. Luke, who's a doctor who writes another biography of Jesus' life, another gospel, he goes a step further and describes Jesus' anguish as he's praying. And he says in Luke chapter 22 that as Jesus was in anguish and praying more earnestly, his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. There's this thing called hematidrosis, which I probably mispronounced, um, that, that is a very rare condition but actually causes the sweat glands in your body to rupture and blood is mixed with your sweat. And it happens under very severe stress and anxiety. It doesn't happen all the time. But it's, it's a way that we're showing how incredibly powerfully horrible this moment that Jesus is experiencing. How weighty and how heavy of what he's going through. And here's the point. Here's the point of all this. Jesus doesn't just know about our darkest moments. He experienced them. He, he knows what it's like because he's lived it. We're not alone in our darkest moments when all hope seems lost. God didn't simply pontificate from the mountain and say, hey, you peons go and do this. He sent himself in the form of Jesus to live the same highest of highs and the same lowest of lows that we experience. In Hebrews chapter 4, And approaching God's throne is exactly what Jesus is doing in this dark moment in his life. So in Mark chapter 14, verse 35, going a little further, farther from Peter, James, and John, Jesus falls to the ground and prays that if possible the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. This word that's used, Abba, is an Aramaic word and there's not really an exact English equivalent to understand the force of what this word means. But typically, popularly, we say Jesus is using the word dad, a, a term of endearment and familiarity. Jesus is addressing God the Father with an intimacy and familiarity that's expressing both love and reverence for who he is. But here's the thing. This, this is not a manipulative plea from, from God. It's not like one of my kids coming up and saying, Dad, you know, this is what I really want out of you. you know, that's, it's not the whole, dear God, you know, here's what I really want you to do in this situation. I know we haven't talked in a long time, but I, I just need you to do this, and I promise I'll do something for you. Like it's, it's not that kind of conversation that Jesus is having. This is a familiarity and love and reverence that's born out of Jesus spending intentional Communal time with God throughout his entire life throughout his entire ministry regardless of whether or not things are going well or things are going poorly There's a discipline here that Jesus models for humanity that's illuminated by this phrase Yet not what I will but what you will And this is a significant thing that Jesus models and teaches for us in this moment so much of what we think might be the solution in our moments of despair may not be. That maybe God has a plan that's bigger and better and more complete than what we could choose for ourselves, and maybe we not we might not see to the other side of, of what that is. But if we're willing to say, God, here's what I'd love to have happen, but if but if not, I and mean, whatever you have planned, I, I'm going to I'm going to. Allow that to be sufficient and enough for me. That's, that's what Jesus is modeling for us here. See, so Jesus knows what to come, what's to come. He knows he's about to die. In Matthew chapter 20, 28, verse 28, just as the Son of Man Jesus says, did not come to be served, but to serve and, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He he knows what he's about to face. Jesus is feeling feeling the fullness of what's ahead of him as a human being. The pain, the fear, the loneliness, the loss. He sees all of that coming, but even more than that, his perspective as God makes him more aware than we could ever know of the rift that exists between us and God because of sin. And Jesus is willing to stand in the gap, physically and spiritually stand in the gap between God's holiness and man's sin for us because he knows that God's plan is best. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul points out that God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was willing to follow through with all of this, go through the pain of taking the weight of the past, present, and future sin of the entire world because he trusted God the Father. And that's the kind of hope that's going to sustain you and I through our darkest moments in this life. It's hope that's built on trust in the goodness of God's will. That no matter what we're facing, because God is God, he is worth trusting. And even more than that, because God is our father, the hope that we place in him will always result in what is best for us. Jesus, absolutely, he asks what he wants from God, but he doesn't ask God to bend to his will. He ultimately asks God to give him the strength to continue with God's will. So Jesus has this deeply draining emotional, physical, and spiritual time of prayer with God, but but the thing that he does, he doesn't do it alone. He's asked his disciples to partner with him. Only problem is when he checks in on their progress, this is what he finds in verse 37. He returns to the disciples and finds them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. And returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Right before this passage of scripture, Jesus is talking with his disciples, and he's saying that, hey, each one of you, at some point, you guys are going to betray me. You're 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 gonna leave me. And Peter, one of the most outspoken of the disciples, all of them say this. We say absolutely not. There's never there's never a moment that we're gonna fall away or deny Jesus. All of them say this. And yet here's three opportunities for them to be there with Jesus, to not let Jesus be alone in this moment and and they're too sleepy. And see what they don't realize is they don't they don't know what's about to come. Jesus predicted it, yeah, but they don't understand. They don't understand the gravity of what they're about to experience. Jesus' death brings about hopelessness. It brings about them hiding in fear for their lives. They're about to flee as Jesus is arrested. But, but not only, and here's what Jesus is concerned with, not only have, Je- has, have the disciples let Jesus down, that's, that's not the thing he's worried about, they're also making themselves vulnerable to losing the hope they need to face what's to come. And in the midst of this, this is what Jesus is concerned about. It's not, hey, you guys have let me down. It's, oh, you guys don't understand what you need. But that's why I'm here. Jesus is saying, I know. I know this is hard. But that's why I'm doing all of this. Because I know that the struggle is real. I know that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. My whole plan is to give you a way out and a reason to not give up and to trust in the hope that is to come. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we see Jesus at his most hopeless moment. It's distressing, but at the same time, there's a great encouragement here because it means that Jesus knows exactly how I feel when I hit rock bottom. He can relate. He lived a human life, and he experienced the human condition. And what we see in the story is that even when things get really hard, hopeless even, is that Jesus still is faithful, no matter what. Even when anyone else would have given up, Jesus is faithful, he's been there, he's done that, and he is faithful. And because he turned to the strength that only God can provide, he was able to trust God's will and make the right decision even in the wrong circumstances, because that's what hope does for us. Hope enables us to make the right decision in the midst of the the wrong circumstances. Like This is not how God designed life to go, is for us to feel hopeless and to be in dark moments. This is not what He wants for us. That's why He sends Jesus. Jesus finds the strength to do this by turning to God and communing with him in prayer, and he doesn't do it alone. Sure, his disciples let him down, but so do we. We let Jesus down. Sometimes we let each other down, but here's Jesus in the midst of his greatest sorrow, and he's caring for his disciples. Jesus Jesus doesn't leave us alone. Even even when we fail him, even when we leave him alone, Jesus doesn't us, leave us alone. You, you are not alone. As much as you may feel that, and as much as you have moments in life that seem to convince you of that, you are not alone. Jesus encourages us, he encourages disciples, hey, be alert. No that you don't have to be surprised by the darkest night. Because at some point, you'll experience that. The enemy would love to lull us in into a stupor so that we're not ready for what may to come. And so Jesus reminds us to be vigilant. And the way that you do that is the same way Jesus does it. you turn to God, and you look to him, and you say, God, this this is what's going on. Here's how I'm crying out. Here's what I would love to see happen. But more than anything, God, I trust in you, that you're sovereign, that you're Lord, that you're a creator, that you have my best interests at heart, that your will will lead me to your goodness and what's best for me in my life. And so God, give me the strength to, the, to do that. And, and the other thing is this, is that you, you need people in your life. You need an inner circle that will come and be with you and help hold you up while you're praying in that moment as well. See, Jesus went out of his way to build those relationships with his disciples. Sure, they failed him in this moment, but post-resurrection, they never failed Jesus again. They were willing to die for him because they saw the risen Christ, and they recognized the gravity and weightiness of what Jesus, Jesus had done. You need people in your life who will surround you and care for you. See, even in our darkest hour, we're told that we we don't have to live like people who don't have hope. One of the most significant things that we all face, one of the most darkest moments that all of us will face or have faced because of family members, people that are close to us, friends, is death. And that's what Jesus was about to face. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring Jesus with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Skip down to verse 17. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And not simply words, it's, it's the truth. It's who Jesus came to be to give us life even when it seems like life is over. Even when our life is out of control God is still in control and his will is worthy of our trust. And it's why even in the darkest night, hope is always rising for us. Let me pray for us. God, as we are confronted with the sorrow in the garden and we know that the cross is, is to come. God, we praise you for the privilege it is to know the rest of the story, that Jesus rose again and that he provides new life. And, and because of that, we always, we always have hope. God, we thank you that Jesus knows exactly what we've been through, what we're going to go through. He's walked that walk. And God, help us to learn from how Jesus walked that walk that we might put it into practice in our lives, that we might learn from, from it and how we encourage others uh, to deal with the hopelessness that they feel in, in their lives. God, we thank you for your son Jesus. We thank you for his sacrifice and we thank you for his resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen.